Hello and welcome to Talk the Walk. I'm Azam Khan. The recent chain of developments in West Asia, or the Middle East, subsequent to the Saudi-Iran rapprochement that was brokered by China a month ago, has thus far been game-changing for the region's people, yet overlooked in the mainstream media. We have the wind-down of the brutal Yemen war, considered the worst humanitarian crisis in recent years. There's the gradual but promising reintegration of Syria back into international affairs, including its own reconnection with Riyadh. And both Yemen and Syria are in early stages of integration into China's Belt and Road Initiative and economic corridors. The commonality between these countries is that they all now have a path towards a future, one that is not predicated on military and war. How exactly is China's growing impact in the Gulf changing the region's paradigm? And what will the road look like in the near future? My guest today is an expert on Middle East development and Sino-Gulf relations. He's the vice chairman of the Belt and Road Institute in Sweden, Hussein Askari. Mr. Askari, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me. Thank you, Asam Khan. It's my pleasure. Um, I want to start with Yemen um, and the recent developments there for peace um, that's been followed by the Iran and Saudi Arabia's reconnection. Can you talk about the sentiment in the country and the significance of the developments that's been happening there recently? Yes, well, I, as you said, uh, Yemen uh, had undergone uh, one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world uh, in the, since 2015. Uh, we, it's a, there is a huge sigh of relief, of course, in the country, uh, especially the areas where, which are controlled by the Sana'a government or the Ansarullah Alliance or the Houthis, uh, because all these areas were blockaded by sea, land, and air, which, mean, which meant that people could not import food, medicine. Uh, the Sana'a airport was closed for many years. So people who needed uh, urgent medical care abroad because the healthcare system in Yemen was not good, so many people would travel abroad for treatment. Most of those people died because they could not get out of the country. And then we had this old massive malnourishment especially among children, where people were saying every 10 seconds a Yemeni child dies. So all these things now suddenly, and thanks to the intervention of China, are shifting, and people are very, very happy. Uh, my friends in Sana'a are very hopeful, but they're also anticipating, uh, you know, with excitement to what these uh, talks would lead to, but everything uh, seems to be positive. Now, the uh, one of the big issues here is, uh, of course, the the relief now is starting to come into the country uh, and from the Hodeida port, for example. Uh, the airport might be reopened. And uh, one other issue, which was is on the talks with Saudi Arabia and the different Yemeni, because as part of the uh, crisis of the war, the Yemeni central bank was moved from Sana'a, the capital, to Aden in the south, which meant that a lot of the financial transactions, including paying for salaries of people, government employed, uh, were stopped. So people had no salaries all this time, and now they are hoping to get back their salaries so they can buy food and other necessities for their families. So all in all, this is a very, very positive thing. These things have not happened in the region for decades, uh, and everybody is uh, happy with that. Right, and I understand that you're also actively, you yourself are actively participating in trying to uh, come up with solutions for its reconstruction. Um, I know you just shared some details about uh, some obstacles that they face right now, but can you share a little bit about um, what your participation and what you would propose you would like to see? 
Well, since the outbreak of the war, of course, uh, I, as a member of the International Schiller Institute also, uh, we were opposed to this uh, war. Uh, but prior to the war, we were discussing with the interested uh, people in Yemen, friends from uh, who are part of an association studying the BRICS nations, and also studying the Belt and Road Initiative and the impact of that, potential impact of that on Yemen. So we were studying uh, economic development plans with Yemeni friends and the institutions. Uh, so we, when the war broke out, this we got a setback uh, because of that. But I think one of the important things is that we were always looking to the future, and also we put on the table a proposal for the reconstruction of Yemen uh, with our friends in Yemen. We have uh, Fuad Al Ghaffari, who's now the advisor to the prime minister in Sanaa, and he's also for the affair, BRICS affairs. So we put together with the, some institutions in Yemen a plan, a peace plan based on economic development and connection to the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, which is both basically based on building uh, development corridors from the north of the country to the south with transport, power lines, power production, water management, agricultural projects, and industrial projects all the way to the south and west where we have the major ports of Yemen, which uh, China sees as a very important part of the maritime Silk Road, and also Yemen being situated physically between Africa and Asia as the westernmost posting of West Asia and the Asian continent to Africa, it makes Yemen in a very good geographical position to play a strategic role and economic role in this. So we have had uh, these discussions in 2018. We produced a special report, a study on the reconstruction plans and how to integrate Yemen into the Belt and Road Initiative. So this opened the door. The idea was that in order to convince the leaders and the different institutions and the international community to work for peace is that we wanted to give them a vision of how the future of Yemen could look like, how the future of the people of Yemen could look like, and put it on the table for the peace talks. Because we believe that there is no there will be no security without economic development and no economic development without security. So two things are integrated, and that's what we wanted to put forward. Right. Um, and I did not even mention at the top of the show that right now Kabul officials are currently in Pakistan uh, meeting their counterparts in Pakistan, brokered by the Chinese foreign, minister, uh, Chinese foreign minister. And they're also talking about potentially gaining um, some kind of access and integration into these economic corridors and to the Belt Road Initiative. Um, can you talk about if, if, uh, if you have any insight on uh, the stages of where that, would, where that lies right now? Is it similar to, um, to Yemen as well? It's a almost identical situation because we have also a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan because after the withdrawal of the United States and NATO, uh, the, the Afghanis were punished. The Afghani people were punished by freezing their assets in, in the <coughs> American Federal Reserve. There are $9 billion of Afghani money. It's not the Taliban's money. It was frozen by the United States. European banks also froze some assets, and therefore the Afghan people could not buy medicine and, and food, which is necessary for them. But... Uh, China intervened also in Afghanistan in a similar manner, and there are discussions now on reconstruction. We have also uh, certain plans for reconstruction of, of Afghanistan and integrating its infrastructure into the Belt and Road through connection both to Pakistan but also to the Central Asian republics, connecting the also the power uh, lines, the transport, railways, building new railways, but also uh, many major water uh, projects to enable the Afghani people to use their land for 
create some sort of self-sufficiency of, of agriculture and food, because Afghanistan is historically known as a garden of Central Asia, uh, where you know uh, food production was key to this, and there were major irrigation systems since ancient times. And also, Afghanistan has massive mineral resources, which could be utilized for industrialization process, for export, to gain um, uh, to gain uh, hard currency, for the internal development. And I think China is doing a, an excellent job both on the diplomacy, but also on the prospects for economic development in Afghanistan to pull that country finally after 200 years of great games and wars out of that trap. Right. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that uh, earlier this week, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, U.S. politician and uh, son of Robert Kennedy and he's an environmental lawyer, he said recently in an interview that uh, the U.S. military industrial complex uh, pretty much has a stranglehold on foreign policy and on the different civil um, institutes as well in the United States, and he wants to work to changing that. Um, so when you see how China is um, approaching this in a different aspect and changing the paradigm of the region, um, how do you think that transition will look, and how do you think it'll be, like, especially in the, in the years to come right now, how will that paradigm change uh, look to you generally? Well, the paradigm shift has two aspects. One is positive, which that people are seeing what China and some of China's friends in the BRICS nations have developed, and they are establishing a new norm for international relations and governance, which is based on economic development, based on respect of the sovereignty and independence of nations, but win-win cooperation. And this is attracting uh, the eyes of people. First, first, there was a bit of skepticism what this is all about, but now it's becoming more and more clear that the path with China and uh, China's partners have taken are actually giving results in terms of improving the living conditions of people, establishing peace, and so on and so forth. The other aspect is a negative aspect, which people have seen the results of the so-called rules-based order, which was led by the United States, NATO, the EU, and other Western powers Britain, uh, which has led to devastation, wars, civil wars, humanitarian crises, environmental crises, and all kinds of problems. And as you say, you know, the military-industrial complex, which is backed by a media uh, empire and academic empire more and more, to justify what this rules-based order is doing to, you know, establish hegemony with the, with the power of weapons over the nations of the world. So the people are moving away from that Western-dominated order, as we have seen in the Gulf countries, for example, Saudi Arabia, which was a surprise to everybody, and the United Arab Emirates, they are moving away from their traditional alliance with Britain and the United States and moving closer to China, Russia, the BRICS nations, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, because they see that their future as nations, economically, culturally, security-wise depends on this kind of win-win philosophy and cooperation, which they could not find all these years and all these decades of alliance with the West. The only thing Saudi Arabia could do is finance wars, proxy wars in the region, buy weapons, and neglect the development of Saudi Arabia and its people. Now, Saudi Arabia has shifted with the Saudi Vision 2030, now working with China and others to build an industrial economy, build infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, and use the money which was spent on wars on developing the livelihood of the Saudi people and their future. So the, what President Xi Jinping calls a community for a shared future for mankind is a real 
thing. It's ta it has taken life of its own. It's, it has taken shape and it has clear principles. It has clear goals. And this is what nations are willing to work on. And hopefully the Western nations who are in deep crisis, like here in Europe, in the EU, and in the United States, where we have deep economic, social, and cultural problems, they will wake up to the fact that what has been done in their name in the past decades has been wrong. And now it's time to join this new paradigm of international relations, which is not something China invented. It's going back to the United Nations Charter, uh, where all the principles China is advocating are contained there. So what we need is to go back to that international uh, United Nations Charter and cooperation among nations and respect the sovereignty and internal affairs of nations and work for economic development and prosperity. Mr. Ascari, I'm going to have to pause you right there real quick, and we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Hussein Ascari. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Talk the Walk. I'm speaking with Vice President of the Belt and Road Institute in Sweden, Hussein Askari. Ms. Askari, um, you were mentioning before the break about um, Saudi Arabia's uh, shift towards BRICS. I understand they've applied their membership, but I wanted to quickly ask you, like, how fast, how fast is that moving? Um, and when you couple that with the fact of <clears throat> the, the changes in the de-dollarization happening right now with uh, Brazil and Argentina leaders right now meeting to try and um, shift its currency. So when you see um, that economic uh, development happening, is that only speeding up the and just giving al alternative solutions? Um, is that something that you think will speed up now in the in the near future? Yes, there are two aspects which are speeding up these processes and moving them away from the business as usual to you know a high speed processes. First of all, is that the the prospects for the uh, so-called de-dollarization de and the integration of the economies of the global south, which I call the global majority, is uh, going to make things move faster because nations are in, you know, they need to already now establish a set of rules and, and uh, ways of dealing with their economic uh, situation and their resources. Like Saudi Arabia has enormous uh, natural resources, but also financial resources, which are which historically has been used in a not the correct manner uh, through investments in financial and banking sector, real estate in Europe and the United States, in the city of London. And now these resources need to be invested as soon as possible in real tangible uh, productive uh, projects like what they are doing in Saudi Arabia with building petrochemical industries. Chi Saudi Arabia and China signed a, an agreement to build a massive petrochemical plant in China, which is cost $10 billion. And th so this is a, one accelerator. The other accelerator is that we have a global financial and banking crisis in the world, which we have seen uh, re-emerging. The 2008 global financial crisis never ended, actually. It continued, but it was uh, paused by money printing by the central banks of the United States, Britain, the EU, and Japan, where almost $20 trillion of money, fake money, was printed to keep the banking and financial system alive. And that's now, uh, you know, uh, hitting back at them because you cannot just continue the process of printing money without developing the physical real economy. And that's the second accelerator. Nations are fleeing from the Titanic to the lifeboats 
uh, to secure their economic and financial future. So these two things are uh, happening hand in hand and accelerating this process of this new paradigm towards the BRICS, towards the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, towards the Belt and Road right. Initiative. I understand that you also um, have a, a specialty and a focus on Africa's development with regards to um, from China. Um, but is Africa's development and China's economic um, achievements over there, its vast investment and achievements and infrastructure and whatnot over the last few years, is that something to point to with regards to the Gulf region as a sort of framework? Um, is that something that can silence the critics? And there's always plenty of those right now, especially in mainstream media um, with regards to the Gulf's shift to, towards China. But is, Afri is the African development something, a, blue, a, blue, a blueprint for, to go by? Yeah, I think uh, Af many African nations are in a similar situation to Saudi Arabia. We have a, a lot of natural resources, but these natural resources were exported directly to Western countries mostly and to East Asia uh, without any added value to the nations of Africa or to Saudi Arabia or the Gulf countries. So, you know, the, the normal case is, you know, if you sell one barrel of oil for $70, uh, China, Japan, South Korea will use that one barrel of oil to produce chemicals, paints, plastics, and other devices, which make one each do, each barrel of oil worth seven hundred dollars, ten times more than the uh, uh, if you exported as raw material. The same goes to the met minerals and metals uh, exported from Africa. They are shipped to Europe and other parts of the world where they are turned into uh, products, tools, machines which are worth tens and hundreds of times worth more than the raw material exported. So African nations now finally looking at their own development and they saw there's an, another developing nation, which is China, uh, how it managed, although it doesn't have so much natural resources, but as President Xi Jinping presented in the China-Africa Forum uh, Summit in 2015 in Johannesburg, South Africa, he said, we are also developing nation, a developing nation. Africa is completely capable of developing as industrial powers if you overcome three bottlenecks of development. And President Xi outlined these three as the lack of credit, finance, the lack of infrastructure, and the lack of skilled labor. And he said, if you overcome these three, you'll become capable of industrializing and using your natural resources for your own development. And China is completely happy to cooperate in that sense. And China did provide credits for over, uh, you know, $300 billion in investments in infrastructure, which everybody's complaining about, but there's no reason to complain about. If you build infrastructure, you're increasing the productivity of the economy. Uh, China has provided its engineering and uh, know-how skills in building this infrastructure, but it's also building industrial parks like, for example, in Ethiopia and Egypt and other parts of Africa, and enabling those nations to use their labor force, which is developing now, and also the natural resources and geographical location to be to turn towards both agricultural development but also industrial development. So this is a fantastic model for cooperation for African nations. Mr. Ascari, I want to um, ask a little bit about your background and how you came about uh, working to, on Sino-Gulf relations and helping to educate China-led initiatives in the West and uh, working in public policy in institutes um, in different countries um, in Europe and the US. So uh, well, how did that journey come about for you? 
Well, I left Iraq as a young man in 1992, or already in 91, after the Gulf War or the Kuwait War, and then I ended up in Norway and then uh, Sweden. Um, in 1994, I met the International Schiller Institute, who were talking about the Palestinian-Israeli peace. They said, forget about peace if you don't have economic development. And that was a fascinating aspect for me, because everybody says, if you don't have peace and security, you cannot have development. The Schiller Institute said, no, it's the other way around. If you don't have economic development, you will never have peace and security. So I became fascinated. I joined the Schiller Institute, and we were doing studies on physical economics which is developed by American economist Lyndon LaRouche, and uh, which is actually, it was since 1994-95 when I joined, the Schiller Institute was working on developing the Eurasian African land bridge, which is the new Silk Road. So long before the Belt and Road was announced, we were doing studies on integration of the infrastructure uh, 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 structures of Asia, Africa, and Europe, and later even to the Americas. And we did many scientific studies and produced reports. We had conferences and seminars all these years. And when President Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative, we were celebrating because finally a major power has adopted uh, this concept. So therefore, we have had uh, a very good background in promoting this as a peace plan for the whole world by integrating the economies of nations through infrastructure, first of all, trade, scientific exchange, cultural exchange. So when the Belt and Road Initiative was announced, we were completely prepared to you know, launch this uh, work. And it was, as being an Iraqi, I have seen what has happened to my country. And uh, we had been working on, for example, in West Asia, we did plans for reconstruction of Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Afghanistan, all as part of this international, you know, uh, cooperation uh, program we put together in the Schiller Institute. So mm. uh, we started later the Belt and Road Institute in Sweden, which is an, a, a, also an interesting story. But all these years, this has been my passion, my fascination with the history of the Silk Road, but also the potential for the future of integrating all these nations. And I know you're based in Sweden, which is even more um, uh, sort of, I feel like it has even less general understanding towards the Belt and Road versus like a Germany and a France, which is more connected. Um, so could you just talk about um, that dynamic of being in Scandinavia and how it's reception there, but also in the think tank world generally in Europe? Yes, I mean, we had in um the tension in the world has been increasing, and the think tanks and academia and media has been part of this military-industrial complex uh, thing more and more. And unfortunately, in the, when the Belt and Road Initiative was launched, everybody neglected it. You know, they said this is not this is just a political propaganda thing, and then they started ridiculing it. But then when they saw that more and more nations joining the Belt and Road, they started attacking it. So there was a massive disinformation campaign in Europe, but also here in Sweden, against China, against the Belt and Road. So we arranged some activities. And then out of these activities, some people suggested in 2018, we do a special uh, think tank or association to inform people in Sweden and in Europe about the merits of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative and why Sweden and European nations should join it, not stand against it, because it will be beneficial for us. We are industrial nations. 
like Sweden is export oriented. We have massive industries who are actually very good in construction technology. And China is one of the big trade partners of Sweden and of Europe. So there is no reason why not to cooperate with the Belt and Road Initiative. So we on we did two things is first to inform about objectively about the Belt and Road Initiative Two, what is the benefit of working with China on the Belt and Road, for example, in third countries in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, how would this will benefit Swedish uh, companies and technology uh, producers? I believe that's all the time we have. Hussein Askari, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. That's all for this time and we'll see you same time next week. Goodbye.